Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. Welcome everybody to the podcast of the Osteology Foundation on Legends of Oral Regeneration. It is an immense pleasure for me to welcome my good friend and mentor, Professor Daniel Boozer. Danny Boozer uh, was a professor of uh, the Department of Oral Surgery and Stomatology at the School of Dental Medicine, University of Bern. Now he is Professor Emeritus in about uh, one year. And he was also the executive uh, director of the school. Danny Boozer is in fact a legend because I remember when I was a postgraduate student in, in, in Aarhus in the early 90s. Uh, your book about uh, guided bone regeneration came out and uh, this was like a kind of Bible for us and uh, everybody wanted to meet you in person. Danny Boozer was president of the ITI, president of the AIO in uh, Europe. He received numerous awards uh, for his uh, scientific uh, merit and uh, he was also a number of years member of the Osteology uh, Board. Um, Danny, I would like to discuss with you about your philosophy and uh, also your, your career. And I would like to ask you, how did you start your uh, career and uh, what were the key elements for success? Tony, thank you very much for this kind introduction. Uh, yeah, my career. I did my federal exam in the dentistry in 1980 and uh, decided to go for a postgraduate educational surgery. At that time, nobody placed any implants at the department. And uh, I grew into this situation. Then uh, three years later, when I, when I got a job offered as senior surgeon, and then uh, I started to have discussion with Professor Andre Schroeder, who was very active in that field and uh, was about to retire uh, at the University of Bern. And I think that's how the career started, because then he encouraged me uh, to stay in academics and go for an academic career. And uh, when you ask me about the, the success factors, you see, first of all, I would say, uh, you need, uh, in that phase of the career, you need a mentor or mentors. And I, I had the pleasure to have first, the first mentor, Professor Schroeder, as I mentioned already, the, the founding president of the ITI, uh, extremely good person, lot of vision, uh, free of any jealousy, I mean, that was very important for me, fully supporting me in my academic uh, development. And we started with uh, surface technology. That was my first project that became very famous then. But also late 80s, uh, we, we grew into the situation that we had a lot of patients with bony defects and we had no clue how to treat those patients. Eh? And then, of course, uh, GTR was, of course, very, very strongly discussed. And we thought, why can we not use these membranes for GBR? That is what's called later on. So uh, that's how we started in the late 1980s in Bern, with first surgeries. 
And then I would say with the discussion on this topic, uh, I met uh, my second uh, uh, mentor then uh, more often. This is Professor Robert Schenk. He made a huge impact to the dental field. He was an emeritus professor in anatomy, a bone biologist. And he really explained to us how bone is healing. So we did then the first studies all with Professor Schenk, his fantastic histology. And I would say, as I said, the first um, major point of a career is the mentorship. Also to have Schroeder and Schenk was a huge, uh, huge uh, benefit for me, you see. And... uh I know that you were also very successful in, in sports because you you were uh, a very successful handball player. You were, I think, uh, also in the national team of Switzerland. Uh, do you think that some um, aspects from uh, the sports, from the team approach, can be also implemented into the uh, into the daily business, into the um, Uh, team approach uh, in dentistry? Absolutely, you see, I strongly believe that uh, when you have a chance to be active in sports, in particular in team sports, you can profit a lot for your later life. And uh, uh, I established from beginning uh, a lot of collaborations and of course ITI, the name says it, it's an international team of implant dentistry or, or implantology. So actually that was already implemented, a team approach. So uh, we have been able, through the ITI network first, uh, with uh, David Cochran in the United States, also San Antonio, with Harvard, with H.P. Weber, to establish very successful collaborations. And there, uh, these collaborations only work when you have so-called give-and-take teamwork approach. That means... Sometimes you give more than you get back, and sometimes you uh, you get back more than what you give in, and uh, this has been extremely successful over the years. Now these are the international collaborations at the dental school. Then, when I got the professorship in oral surgery, I was always working uh, to one goal that the departments inside the dental school go into a uh, collaboration, uh, so it's not competitive; it is synergistic and that the University of Bern Dental School today has been ranked three times uh, top 10 dental school in the world, you see, is primarily based on the quality of the professors and the chairs and this synergistic collaboration between the groups. And that's why I have been extremely pleased to see how the development between oral surgery and periodontology, but also oral surgery and prosthodontics have been improved in the last 10 years so much that actually we can say we have an ideal situation right now. Yes, I think um, uh, this is uh, very, very important. And um, you are not only a world famous uh, or a surgeon, but also world famous uh, researcher. And uh, how how can you uh, combine this, uh, these two fields? Because if you look at other dental schools uh, all over the world, Basic research is uh, quite different from from the clinic uh, clinical research, and I think this is also a strength of mm. our uh, dental school uh, that we have this kind of translational approach. And uh, you were also the driving force behind. Could you elaborate on this? Yeah, of course. I have been very lucky uh, because when when I decided to stay in academics, of course, I had no idea 
uh, how to do research. Eh? So there I needed the advice of Schroeder in the beginning. And he said, you team up. Eh? You need to get the best experts in the field to help to do this research. So one was, you go and, uh, uh, and see Professor Schenk. That was the first recommendation. Second one was uh, Professor Steinemann, at that time a physicist, who uh, has been the father of all the modern implant surfaces, like the SLA surface of Stroman. And uh, that's how actually I grew into the first topic of research, surface technology. And you have to keep in mind, in the mid-80s, the, 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 the state-of-the-art or standard-of-care surface was the Bronemark surface, which is a machine surface. And that surface had a lot of problems because many implants did not really integrate well. So we, we, we felt we need to have a surface that has a certain structure but should not be too rough. So that's how we started that research in the late 80s. And then uh, we had looked at one of these surfaces from Professor Steinemann, actually this SLA surface, and it was called in the first publication, then uh, uh, really showed remarkable bone integration, much faster and a much higher degree of bone apposition. So with that development, then we could actually shorten healing periods, improve the primary, uh, the primary stability, and also, the, let's say, the success rates during healing. So this paper got, it's among the top five cited papers in the dental literature in implant dentistry. That was just pure luck huh? uh, that we just were there. Second one was then the GBR, huh? because uh, everybody had the same problem, the, all these defects. And when we started to see that actually membranes can help us uh, to regenerate uh, bone defects uh, predictably, then of course also these publications they have uh, achieved a lot of uh, attention, you see. So today we call that translational research. I always told my team, look, we are doing animal research only when we see that in three to five years our current surgical technique can be improved. Either can be made easier for the clinician or can, it, can, can be made more successful for the outcome. So that was always our goal. So, uh, in fact, as you say, our research has always been uh, translational. So today, millions of patients have profited from this research with the surface and with GBR. And that's why uh, many of my our papers, you see, uh, are in the top, top 100 citation papers and okay. so on. So if we talk about GBR, what are your criteria to select the most appropriate biomaterial because we have a plethora of materials on the market and uh, sometimes the clinician faces a problem that they cannot select the right one or they see many different uh, approaches or materials and it is really quite difficult to select the right ones. Well, which are your criteria? Also, you have to see the development. We are currently writing on the third edition of the GBR book, mm -hmm. eh? and it's, it will be a fantastic book with all the best uh, GBR experts in the world, on the, on the globe. Eh? And it shows 30 years of progress. Uh, and of course, in the first 10 years, that was a phase of development. So we started from scratch. And uh, we had the cortex membranes. Uh, Stuart Neumann brought that to burn uh, like prototypes. And we just started to do some surgeries in, uh, in our department. The first 12 patients then were published in 1990. At that time, you see, we have seen, of course, 
difficult handling of the membrane. We had seen collapses, uh, infections. So then uh, we started to use autogenous bone chips primarily to support the membrane. So we were very mechanistic thinking. But then when we went into the first animal study on various bone filling materials, bone substitutes, to see is there a chance to find something which could replace autogenous bone uh, chips. Because to eliminate the harvesting for the patient, we realized very quickly that actually autogenous bone has, has it's unparalleled. No filler can get this osteogenic uh, boost uh, of new bone formation. But in the first paper, then we published '98, we found that there were there were fillers that do not resorb. So in the beginning, we thought that's not good, really. Uh. But then, when we moved from cortex membranes to collagen membranes, and you have a resorption of the membrane within four six weeks, and when you combine it with autogenous bone alone, then we have seen an excellent outcome at three months, and three three months later, at six months, uh, half of the augmentation disappeared by resorption, hmm? mm-hmm. like like yeah. what we know from callus formation of fracture healing. Hmm? A, boost the callus and then goes back. So we start to realize, and again there Professor Schenk was instrumental in the discussion. I met him once a week for coffee breaks and so. I told him the problem and he said, yeah, then uh, let us think about two fillers. One an osteogenic one and one a a volume-stable filler. And that's how we got into the bios discussion. Because he had five-year specimens from uh, from patients, from uh, actually Dr. Kirsch, Axel Kirsch, mm-hmm. that showed that at five years, uh, the BIOS was still there, 30%. So we figured out, hey, that could be the solution. So today I'm completely convinced that when you look at the best surgeons we have on the globe, uh, they all use a combination. We call that a composite graft. Uh, mm-hmm. That means one which boosts the bone formation, that reduces the healing periods, gives you more bone formation, and one that keeps the volume, which is like bios or others. Eh? The best one is for sure bios. And then you combine them, you see, you can mix them, it's a mixed composite graft, or you can layer them in two layers, as we do it in, in contour augmentation. Then you really get uh, excellent long-term results, as we have shown now in prospective 10-year studies. Yeah, I think your... your um your idea with these two grafts, I mean, is is, is very successful clinically, yeah. and is, is now one of the standard approaches uh, all over the globe. Yeah. In fact, this is quite simple, but uh, with a sound biologic uh, background. So, uh, what what do you think um, about uh, the importance of uh, soft tissue to maintain? Uh, peri-implant health and uh, also aesthetics. Also because there's always this discussion, do you need the bone or do you need the soft tissue? Of course, we know that the bone is very important, but now also the, the topics related to soft tissue mm. are increasing in, uh, in, in importance. Uh, what is your opinion about this? Okay, when we, when we look at, uh, at the current implant surfaces, eh? the micro-rough surface is the, the standard of care today. And uh, these surfaces have been developed uh, to optimize bone anchorage. 
So it's clear that these implants belong into the bone. Hmm? And we know today that a micro-rough surface, when exposed to the oral cavity, turns into a risk factor for the development of peri-implant infections. So therefore, you can solve the problem to, uh, with two approaches. One is that you use implants that have a so-called hybrid design. Huh? That means uh, in the crestal area, transcrestal area, it's a smooth implant surface. So the accumulation of biofilm is not so easy. And in the endosseous portion, it is micro-rough. Huh? So when you want to, when you have a defect uh, and you put an implant in and your micro-rough surface is exposed, soft tissue augmentation cannot be the solution because then these implants have a high risk to develop peri-implantitis. That's very well documented. So I would say I always go for bone augmentation first. We all know that, of course, the, the mucosal seal at the implant is a very important one. So therefore, we strongly believe that an implant should be located in a keratinized mucosa, at least two millimeters in width, huh? because that gives a very strong cuff. We know from histological studies also done in Bern at that time with, uh, with Carl Donat, actually in Hamburg, huh? that uh, you cannot get uh, inserting fibers into a titanium surface. Uh, that's not possible. You have it for a cementum. But uh, the, the surface, uh, the, the, the fibers you have in the connective tissue are mainly parallel running. Hmm? The really good ones are the circular fibers because they give this cuff. Huh? And you see that very easily. When you have an implant integrated and you take the crown off and you leave the crown off for, let's say, an hour, then it will automatically shrink. Yeah? So the access to the implant will diminish very quickly. Yeah? There's a big problem when we do that clinically. So the circular fibers are important and you have them in this keratinized mucosa. So when there is no keratinized mucosa, I would say it is a very wise decision to reinstall keratinized mucosa because it facilitates a better hygiene for the patient. Patient is much less susceptible because it can be painful. And of course, when everything is mobile and the vestibule is very close to the implant, this will lead, and this is very well documented, to an increased rate of mucositis at the implant and the mucositis can turn into peri-implantitis. So therefore, soft tissue augmentation is important, no question. When you do uh, the correct, uh, let's say, the treatment protocols, the need to fix the keratinized mucosa is primarily needed in the posterior mandible, sometimes in healed sites where you have a very small band. And it is also a need uh, when you fix, when you remove uh, failed, aesthetically failed implants where there is a huge recession, then there is no keratinized mucosa left. Mm -hmm. So these are the two main indications where we still do soft tissue grafting. But otherwise, we do bone grafting. And what do you think about uh, the increased uh, um, need for uh, soft tissue replacement grafts? Is this um, something that will increase in the future? Um, to replace autogenous grafts, or what is your personal opinion? Maybe a combination of both? I think the, we have much more experience in the field of periodontal regeneration, I think. And there, when I listen to your lectures, then, of course, 
I think your message is always when it's very critical from an aesthetic point of view, then nothing is as good as a, a connective tissue graft. Huh? But there are indications where you can use a replacement uh, material. Uh, I have done recently a case, uh, and I'm very curious to see how that works. Huh? A patient who had a problem at an implant, uh, not a peri-implantitis, but we had used in that lady uh, two fixation pins, and one of them caused an soft tissue problem, so I had to take it off. And I've seen that a little collapse of the thickness of the mucosa, so then I used a, a small piece of fibroguide, uh, uh, let's say a subperiosal placement, and uh, so the let's say the short-term uh, documentation actually is quite promising so there will be indications for that but of course it will not be in the big numbers the big numbers is where we need gbr that's clear uh, and so on so i think it, there will be a place but it will not replace uh, the the autologous connective tissue graphs i'm sure so when i look at your career this is unique in in dentistry and uh, I think in, in implantology and oral surgery is uh, something that you created. Uh, I mean, you are a legend. And uh, did you ever think to, to become so famous when you were at the beginning of your career or maybe no. when you were a dental student? No, I would say, of course, as a sportsman, I think you have you learn to be ambitious. Huh? But uh, I learned uh, to, to, let's say, to satisfy my ambitions uh, with other team members. I think without them, I could have never done it. And of course, I think it's not so important. I would say I always tried to see what, what also Schroeder. Schroeder was for me not a mentor for my, let's say, for my clinical work because he was not an implant surgeon. He was an endodontist. Mm. Eh? But he had a lot of wisdom uh, uh, how to behave. Eh? So he told me always, as he told me when we had the first discussion, he said, you're going to have a great career. I know that because I've seen 40 years now of many, many candidates. But I just tell you something. When you have your success, eh, then please stay on the ground with your feet. That's There are people then they really they become arrogant, whatever you see. And I said, you yeah, don't have to be worried about that one, you see. I think what I always try to do then to have this team approach and to share the success with all team members. That's also how I was running my department. I wanted to have uh, Thomas Fonox back because we were teammates in the dental school. He was a very good uh, postgraduate student and uh, uh, couldn't get an, a senior uh, a surgeon position because of my former uh, boss, you see. And uh, I told him, you come back and you build up here uh, dental traumatology, endodontic surgery, and it's your field. You can do whatever you want to do. You get all the credit for that. So I think that is also key, uh, a very key element of successful team, eh? that you give those who know something else much better than you, that you give them the chance to develop and you you give them the chance also then to get a recognition for what they are doing. You see, 50 years ago, the professors were like uh, gods in white shirts, <laughs> you see, and they 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 dictated everything and this, this, uh, this time is over, you see. What what, what uh, do you consider as your most important achievements in your in your career? If you could summarize them, you see what I really what I really uh, love the most in the moment is you see that we have had 
very successful postdoc program. And we had over the years uh, many, many ITI scholars, uh, scholars from uh, Osteology Foundation. So we have established a network of, let's say, original postdoc students and uh, visiting uh, postdoc students. Uh, so it's a network around the globe. Uh, and uh, I learned from those young people uh, to, to use uh, social media now. Uh, so we are connected to those. And I would say, to have this constant exchange with all these uh, former students who are have their own careers, their own families, they grow up, they have five-year, ten-year-old kids and so on. This is, uh, this is a, a fantastic experience. So I, I want to stay active in that field. My main activity will be a little bit clinical, also surgical procedures, as long as, let's say, I'm fit. And uh, the main activity is uh, share the knowledge, uh, share the knowledge to help establish, uh, help develop hundreds and thousands of young colleagues who follow, let's say, evidence-based surgical procedures. We have a lot of garbage in the, in the social media field. We know that, you see, so many, many uh, uh, very driven by marketing and money. Uh, and I think it's very important that we have a certain percentage of fighters for evidence-based approaches. That goes through ITI, goes through the Osteology Foundation. These two foundations have been extremely important for my career. These networks we could establish. And that's, that's what I want to do in the next five, ten years. Excellent. Maybe you could share some so-called uh, stories behind the scenes with the audience. If you have some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, some highlights we had, you see, highlights. I would say the, probably the, the really very special highlight, that was in the ITI group. And in 1998, uh, we had a uh, consensus conference in Bern. Uh, I organized here and uh, we had in that year also uh, the the... 80th birthday of Professor Schroeder. Hmm? So uh, we had an, a big celebration uh, in, in, uh, in the Bellevue five-star hotel uh, with 200 ITI friends and of course Schroeder was there. And then we said we're going to give him a surprise uh, that uh, we had at midnight, we had six of the, six of the most famous ITI fellows Uh, were dressed like uh, Moulin Rouge uh, uh, dancing ladies, <laughs> huh? and uh, and Klaus Lang was the singer, and then we 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 played this. So at 12 o'clock at midnight, they came in with, of course, with music, and then uh, we had a, a stunning performance on stage. It is all main, uh, it's all pictured. Uh, even as a Japanese guy made a video clip, and that was probably. Uh, an event that people still talk about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's more than 20 years ago. That was uh, fantastic. Uh, so, so Schenk Escher Schröder was was very touched to see that. <laughs> And now, at um, the very end, uh, could you give some advices for the young generation, the the young dentists that um, uh, enter a new career? Yeah, also for the young colleagues, when they want to go into academics, eh, then I would say, again, you need to have first a mentor that really uh, supports you 
and will not misuse you for his own career because we see that many times as well. So that's an important one. And then, of course, you have to figure out where are interesting, still open questions. Now we have to see in the field of implant dentistry, uh, let's say the really the big breakthroughs have been done in the 1980s and 1990s. But today, still, I would say in the field of in the field of digital technology is a huge field of research. Uh, and today we want to we want to let's say uh, improve our uh, current surgical techniques, who are already very successful, uh, to further simplify them uh, for the patient in, in in terms that the morbidity for the patients can be reduced further, the healing can be reduced further, so implant therapy becomes uh, more attractive to patients. What we also should do, we should try to make them more cost effective. Also here in the field of digital technology, we see a lot of um, uh, positive developments, in particular in the field of uh, dental technology, as a, what the technicians are doing. So when we are able to reduce the expenses for the treatments, you see that more patients can afford this kind of treatment. So these are the developments. And I think their young generation have a lot of opportunities to do really interesting and sound research. So uh, I think that's important. Then the other one for those who stay not uh, who go into private office, I can only encourage them uh, to stick to these foundations. So they mentioned ITI and osteology. You see, they have fantastic annual. Also every three years a big symposium. So really uh, listen to them. You see and uh, follow the advices of these. There are consensus papers. Uh, how to treat patients, you see. Uh, don't jump on every wagon when there is a new marketing, you see, because 50% uh, of them are worthless. And if you use them too early, then your patients will suffer from that. Huh? So wait and see. Huh? When you see that ITI or osteology recommends a procedure now, then you can move. Huh? So I think that's a very wise strategy to be on the safe side with your uh, daily practice. Thank you very much, Danny, for this uh, great interview and sharing uh, your ideas. And uh, thank you all for listening to this Osteology Foundation podcast and uh, goodbye. Thank you very much. <laughs>